We're going to start with uh, something a little different this morning. Are you ready, Pips? I'm going to ask Karen to come up to you. Karen Patton's going to join me on the platform, and, uh, and so is Pips as well. Thank you, Peps. I'm a princess, Peps, and uh, Jesus is my Lord. He is my, my king, my father, since 1992 to Cameroon. He took me here since uh, September, and he sent me in this church. Some of you know how I found his, this church, and here I found the love of Jesus. I found a lot of blessing. He blessed me by each of you, and he blessed me by, uh, particularly by some people. He blessed me by Agnes, by Karen, Catherine, Carol Noah, uh, Anne, and the, the Sunday school, Pam, and the women ministry, Le, Marguerite, and the Bible study, Gisela, David, and the ESS, and particularly the class of Sally, my teacher. I want to thank God for you, for you all, because he blessed me by each of you. And now I'm going back to my, my country. I want to say what I have to do, because I have an overwork to do there. But I, I will never forget you. I, I, I will miss you. I pray God to, to help you to go ahead with his work because you, you, are, you are working for him here. And I was very, very happy of being here. Uh, I don't know if I will come back, maybe in three, six months, or never. And, uh, if you hear that I am dead, don't be sad. <laughs> sing, sing only he is where we have sworn. Don't say bye bye yet, okay? In Africa, it's customary like when Peps first came to, uh, to Oak Ridge, you remember she came up on the platform. And it's customary in Africa to take greetings from your church to the church you're going to. And so we want to send Peps back with our greeting to your church back in the Cameroons. If you don't understand what I'm saying, that's why uh, Karen's here, to make sure everything's clear. Didn't she do great in English? She's been working really, really hard on her English. So, I need your prayer because my trip is long. Yeah. I need your prayer for myself, for my, my family here, for my country. Yeah. Well, we want to pray for Cameroons. I'll be watching in the next World Cup. If you ever impact by then, I always root for Cameroons. So uh, <clears throat> at any rate, we'll be doing that. And we want to pray 
over Peps that the Lord will bless her. Please take greetings from Oak Ridge back to your church. We thank God for them. They've discipled you well. You've been a blessing to us. We've done everything we can to try to keep her here. David Sainer and I have been just twisting her arm every week saying, your daughter in Cameroon doesn't need you. Your son in Canada does. And she said, no, I've got a granddaughter that needs me, so I need to go home. So we want to pray God's blessing on, on your life. May I? Father, we just want to thank you for Peps, for the, um, for the ministry she's had in our midst, for the love of God that she's demonstrated. We thank you for her church back in Africa, which has uh, discipled her well. We pray, Father, that she would bear our greetings back to that church. We, we thank you for them. We thank you for the ministry that they have had. And we pray that as Peps goes home to uh, minister to her daughter and her granddaughter, we just pray that you would bless her and make her ministry back in Cameroon really fruitful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. God bless you. Thanks, Karen, for standing by. Okay, well, we've been speaking for a couple of weeks on uh, the kingdom of God. We're going to pick up on that theme uh, this morning. And the amazing thing about the kingdom of God is, you know, the topic is huge. I mean, it is just huge because it covers the entirety of the Bible. It begins in Genesis, it ends in Revelation, and the kingdom is everywhere seen, facet after facet, specific after specific. But I've tried in, because uh, I didn't know how long I was going to get to speak. Remember, we know we have guest speakers coming and they're going to start arriving on the 29th. So I had to have a, a sermon series that I could collapse if necessary or expand if necessary or, or do something with. Um, some of you say, oh, you can always talk anyhow. It doesn't make any difference. So um, I've been accused of that before. But you can talk about anything. No, not really. And, and not, and definitely not with intelligence. So, we want to talk with intelligence. As we talk about the kingdom of God, what I've tried to do is to really focus on the simple, important truths about the kingdom. I believe that if you don't have the simple things clear in your life, if you don't have the fundamental things, the foundational things clear, then it's like a building that's built on a foundation that isn't really stable, nothing is stable. It's an actual picture of what happened to a building that didn't have a good foundation. And we don't want that to happen in our spiritual lives. And so we've talked about the kingdom. We talked first about the king. And we talked about several things about the king. We talked about the king. It prophesied. The king was always going to come. It was God's plan. You read about it early in Genesis chapter 17. You read about it in the last chapters of the book of Revelation. The king is God's plan. But the plan wasn't always a reality. I mean, it was prophesied. And so we talked about the king who is going to come, the king who is going to come. And then the Gospels tell us that actually this planned king was a present king. The Gospels start with the question, right? Where is he who's born king of the Jews? The Gospels end with a statement where you see Jesus Christ nailed on a cross and over his head a sign that says, Jesus, the King of the Jews. He's present. What good is a present king who dies? I mean, it seems so futile, right? 
The king finally comes. Can you imagine if they're an Israelite? You've been waiting for thousands of years for the king to show up. He finally shows up, and then he gets himself killed. It seems so futile. But it's not futile at all. It's part of the plan because the king isn't a dead king. The king is actually a living king. He's a resurrected king. He's at the right hand of God the Father, seated in heaven, waiting to come back, waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. And when that happens, then, of course, the king is going to uh, return. He's going to come. And this is the issue that we need to really, really keep in mind. And when he comes the second time, it won't be like the first time. The first time he comes to die for sin. The second time he comes, he comes to reign. Everybody he is going to reign over. There will be no exception. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. This to the glory of God. And so you need to come to the place where you understand that, that this king, Jesus, should be treated like a king. That's the point I've been trying to make all along. That King Jesus is just that. We talk about Lord Jesus. We talk about the kind Jesus. We talk about the nice Jesus. We talk about the compassionate Jesus. At the end of the day, this is King Jesus who happens to be kind and compassionate and loving and saving. But he's king. And that has implications for our lives. He's not just a friend. He's a king. He's not just a good person. He's a king. And so we have to come to the place where we talk about the kingdom. I mean, it's, it's fair to ask the question, right? If he's a king, where's the kingdom? And that's the question we were asking last week. It's, it's a good question. And we're not the first person to ask the question because in Acts chapter 1, that's exactly the questions that the disciples had. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Christ, of course, doesn't answer their question and, and tells them instead that their job is to be a witness of what they've seen in Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. But as we noted last week, in one sense, the kingdom of God is everywhere. I love that passage in Daniel chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar, who has just come back from his insanity, the greatest king of the world at that time, says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the kingdom of heaven, who moves among the armies of heaven, and the inhabitants of the earth, and no one stops him or says to him, what are you doing? That's sovereignty. That's the sovereign power of God. And as we talked about it last week, we pointed that the kingdom of God is wherever, that place where the authority of God is the controlling factor, and that's everywhere. Now you might say, you know what? That kingdom isn't really visible. Well, the fact of the matter is, the invisible kingdom is going to become a very, very visible kingdom. And so we talk about the kingdom that is that is coming, this coming kingdom when Christ is going to come and literally he's going to sit on his throne and literally he's going to rule over the nations and literally he is going to bring into subjection or to an end all rebellion everywhere. 
That kingdom is the coming kingdom. And that's when that phrase that we keep using, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. That's when that's going to happen. But we also noted last week the important thing that I wanted us to get at, that the kingdom is a present kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, that if I, by the power of God, or by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom is among you. The kingdom is here. And we started talking about in what sense that kingdom was here. And that kingdom is here, especially in the life of believing human beings. Okay, it's here in the sense that they have been, uh, the devil has been destroyed. The power, the grip of the devil has been destroyed. It's not just that. It's that sin has been forgiven. I don't know about you, but every once in a while, the devil starts creeping into my mind and reminding me of all of the garbage-like things that I've done in my life. I've done a lot of stuff I wish that I had never done. Anybody else here in the same boat? You know, and the devil's got a long memory. You know, and he keeps bringing this garbage up and saying, how could God save anybody like you? Well, that's a good question, because God's pretty big. needs to be, right? Free from guilt. Free from shame. That's what the cross is all about. He took the code that stood written against us, and he nailed it to the cross. And so Jesus can look at you and look at me and say, if the Son has set you free, then you are free. Indeed. And then, the story gets even better. In the believer, God places His Holy Spirit. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets me free from the law of sin and death. And the very power, that very power that whipped Jesus from a grave is in our bodies as well. The same power which raised up Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. That's what Paul says. And that spirit leads us. And that spirit indwells us. And that spirit guarantees that we're going to get to the place where we become the Christ-like people that God wants us to be. And that's the kingdom of God growing. See, the kingdom of God is growing day by day by day, believer by believer by believer by believer. It's an incredible story about the kingdom of God. But today I want to change the focus just a little, and I want to talk about kingdom life. And as I talk about kingdom life, I'm talking about how is it possible for you and me in a world which is really not in love with God, how can we in that world live lives fit for the kingdom? Lives that are godly, lives that are holy. And so I want to go over to Matthew's gospel, and I want to take a look at the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is an incredible piece of literature. I don't care whether you're Christian or your non-Christian, whatever university you study a course in ethics in, at some point in time, you're going to touch base with the Sermon on the Mount because what Jesus teaches here, whether you believe Jesus is the Son of God or not the Son of God, whether you believe that Jesus was a hoax and just had one good day teaching, this material is incredible. Incredible 
ethical material. We're not looking at it from that point of view this morning. And I expect this morning when I speak to you about the Sermon on the Mount, some of you aren't even familiar with what the Sermon on the Mount might be. The Gospel of Matthew records for us uh, a number of things. And in chapters 5 through 7, we get what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, It's called a sermon because, in fact, it is a long sermon. In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's Gospel is structured in such a way that Jesus is going to give five major sermons. One of those sermons is going to be about how people live in the kingdom. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Luke records the same material, but in a much shorter form. And the sermon in the, in the Gospel of Luke, found in chapter 6, starting at verse 17, is called in Luke's Gospel, the Sermon on the Plain. Now, what I want to do today, probably I shouldn't do. What I want to do is, like in one message, talk about the whole Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Now, this is a lot of material. But what I want to do is I want to look at or look for those principles that hold this entire sermon together. If we can look for, I suppose you might call them macro principles or meta, if you're in a philosophy class somewhere, you're going to call them a a meta principle of some kind. Principles that bind other principles together. That's what we're really going to be looking for. And if you want to study the Sermon on the Mount, and you can do a whole lot worse than studying the Sermon on the Mount, here's a few books that I recommend you might read. You might want to read John Stott's Christian Counterculture. Really, really good book. Small book, good book. You might want to read D.A. Carson's little book on the kingdom. And if you really want to take a big bite, okay, then you want to read Martin Lloyd-Jones' book on the Sermon on the Mount. Actually, Two huge volumes, but well worth the reading. Today, I'm just going to run the risk of taking the simple route, trying to find the things that you can leave with and I can leave with that will be helpful in our spiritual lives. And so I I want to begin with this. The very first principle of kingdom life is this. Enter the kingdom. You don't get into the accident, uh, get into the kingdom by accident. And you don't get into the kingdom by birth. You get into the kingdom ultimately by choice. Jesus uses these examples as we're looking at at chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. You'll, You'll find Jesus says, now there were two gates. One is a very, very large gate. The other is a very small gate. And then he says there are two roads. One is a very, very large road. The other is a very small road. And then he says in front of the large gate, man, there were a lot of people in front of the large gate, in front of the small gate. There really weren't so many people. But then he comes to the critical issue. And the critical issue is not the size of the gate. The critical issue is the destination that the road leads to. Wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the gate. And narrow is the way that leads to life. And there are few people, only a few people, who go in that way. And the instruction is to make sure 
that you enter the gate. See, in, in that road, through that small gate, there is life. It's the place where we've spoken about before, when we enter that gate where sin is overcome. Okay? Where Satan is overcome. Where self is overcome. All of these things, and, and we're on our way to life as God describes it in the Scripture. But understand, entrance is a choice. You choose to enter the kingdom. But you also need to understand something else. Not making a choice is also a choice. Choosing not, and in this case, not choosing, end up being the same thing. There's a big difference between those two things sometimes. But in this case... It ends up the same way. It ends up on the road of destruction. And so it all begins with entering. And when you enter the gate, the narrow gate, and you get on the narrow way, and you choose to live in the kingdom, I want you to understand something. At that point, King me surrenders to King Jesus. There's only one king in the kingdom. And that's King Jesus. So that when you decide to become a Christian, in a sense, this is really what's happening. This is the most fundamental step to becoming a Christian. To be a follower of Christ is to say, I give up my authority over my life to live my life the way I think is right. Jesus would say something like this, quoting the Proverbs, there is a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is the way of death. And so you come to the place. You come to the place where you say, I got it wrong. You're the king. Your kingdom. Your rules. Your way. I follow. That's the beginning. But there's a second step. And now I want us to begin looking at the Sermon on the Mount from the beginning. We looked at the seventh chapter, but now I want us to go to chapter five. And if, and this is a passage of scripture, scripture that many, many people will be accustomed to. You, you all know this. Blessed, 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 blessed. The Beatitudes. Kind of a description of the beautiful life from God's point of view. If you follow these rules, these instructions, you will be a blessed individual. And some people try to turn this into a a recipe. Okay, If I do this, I do this, I do this. We just have a penchant to turn things into rules, don't we? Why is it we want to live in slavery all the time? God wants us to live in freedom. He wants to set us free from stuff. And, and I want you to see something about the Beatitudes today. The Beatitudes actually are a progression. Think of it this way. If you have your Bible in front of you or your tablet or your phone or whatever on earth you're using for Bible these days, just turn to Matthew chapter 5 and you'll see what happens. It starts out like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, that doesn't mean blessed are those who are mentally beat down. Okay? Doesn't mean that. Blessed are those who understand their spiritual poverty. That's more what it means. Okay? And then you come to the second one. Blessed are those that mourn. 
And then you come to the third one, blessed are the meek. And all of a sudden, as you start asking yourself what these things mean, a person comes to the place where they recognize they're spiritually unempty. They're sorry about that. They're not trying to hide the fact anymore. It's an incredible thing. I didn't say it before, but what these three things really are doing, and Hillary picked up for me here, is that we're emptying the garbage in our lives. See, that's the second step. Before you can get righteousness in, you need to get garbage out. And the first three Beatitudes are all about emptying the garbage. Get rid of the garbage. Get rid of the pride. Get rid of the arrogance. Get rid of the cause. Recognize you are spiritually impoverished. Be sorrowful about that. Come to the place where you're openly honest before God and man. That's who I am. I've got nothing to offer. And then you come to the turning point, the fourth beatitude, which says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. We empty the garbage to make room for the good. And then, if you read the the rest of the Beatitudes, 5, 6, and 7, all of a sudden, incredible things are happening in the life of the individual. What's happening? Well, the person all of a sudden becomes merciful. And then the person becomes transparent, sincere. And then the person becomes a peacemaker. And all of a sudden you see that whole life has been turned around, emptied the garbage out, filled with righteousness, and now living a life which is pleasing to God and making a godly impact in the world. So so you start by entering the kingdom and you empty the garbage. And then we come to the next step here, if you will, which is chapter 5, verses 17 through 48. Six times, Jesus loves to use verbal repetitions, and, and he's using them here. Repeated phrase, repeated phrase. You have heard it said, I say unto you. You've heard it said, I say unto you. You've heard it said six times. Jesus says the same thing. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. What's he driving at? I know more than you do. Well, of course, he's the son of God. He does know more than they do. But they have it wrong. You see, what they're doing is they're playing a spiritual game. They're doing just enough to get by. Anybody familiar with that game? Oh, I lived this game for at least four years of my life and probably a lot longer. My high school guidance counselor used to come to me all the time and say something like this, your IQ is higher than your sister's. And I'd say, thank you, that's interesting to know. Okay. And my sister was valedictorian. I wasn't. Okay. This was the problem as far as they were concerned. And and I'd say, and they'd say, why not? Why why aren't you interested? I said, like, you need to understand, I only go to school for one reason. Play sports. Okay? All I care is to get a good enough test score so I can still play sports. Staying eligible. Just enough to stay eligible. It worked. It didn't help me when I got to university, mind you, but it achieved the goal at that point. 
some of us play this game in our marriages. You know, you do just enough to keep the wife off your back. Or vice versa. I might ask you this morning, if you're playing that game, how's it actually going? Because it doesn't usually really work. But you see, that's what the religious people were doing at that time. They wanted to know how much was enough to just kind of get you into the kingdom. And they had all sorts of ways of manipulating the commands of God so that the commands became a, a little less difficult to keep. So, for example, and Jesus cites six of these commands, but I'll just mention two. The first one is adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And they thought, that's right, you shouldn't do that. But the question is, what's adultery? Well, adultery is sleeping with a married partner, somebody, a partner who's married. Well, what happens if they were married, but they're not married now? Or, suppose they never were married. You get the point? See, it's those rationalizations, those little mental gymnastics that we can go through to kind of make things okay for us. And then maybe some of them are a little more spiritual, and they think like, well... Not doing it is good enough. Just as long as you don't do it, but, you know, there's a lot of stuff on computer you can watch, right? You don't even need to ask for it. I'm blocking people every day on my uh, Skype account, like Dolly so-and-so calling, would you want my address? No, thank you, being gone. Like, you know, it's out there, right? I mean, we live in this world. And Jesus says, you got to deal with the root sin, guys. It is lust that takes you straight to hell. You cause, you commit adultery because of lust. You don't lust because of adultery. Get the point? Deal with the root issue. They weren't doing that. The same thing happens with murder. Thou shalt not murder. And they can say, I'm good. Never killed anybody in my life, really. I know lots of wives who have mentally killed their husbands numerous times. Okay? They may never have pulled the trigger, but I'll tell you what. He's dead. Okay? He's still living. He just doesn't know he's dead. And it's not just the gender issue. That goes the other way as well. And there's lots of parents who have dead kids, and there's lots of kids who have dead parents on a mental level. And they think they're okay. In Jesus' day, these people went to the temple just like nothing was wrong. They made their sacrifice and their offering. It's kind of like you could come to Oak Ridge and take communion and do the same thing. Be mad as can be against somebody and play like you're loving God at the same time. And Jesus says, don't you understand, okay? Anger is the root issue. Anger is the root issue. You kill people because you're angry. What Jesus really wants to get across to us is that it's not about doing as little as you can. People who want to live the kingdom life aren't trying to settle for second best. 
They go for the gold. Their heart is set on doing what God wants them to do. And, and that's a really, really key issue. Don't settle for second best. Don't do it. Go for the gold. So here we go. Let's go to the next step now. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. And once again, Jesus is using verbal repetitions here. He says, first of all, do not be like the hypocrites. Three times he's going to say that. Do not be like the hypocrites. Do not be like the hypocrites. Do not be like the hypocrites. Then he's going to say something like, to be seen of men, to be seen of men, to be seen of men. And then he says something like this. They have their reward. They have their reward. They have their reward. And then what Jesus begins to speak about is is what are known as the acts of righteousness, sometimes referred to by Bible scholars as the dixune, the three acts of righteousness, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. But as a righteous person was using these things, or as somebody who wanted people to know how righteous they were, were using these things. I mean, after all, how would anybody know that you were trying to give alms? Right? So you need to create a little attention. You hire somebody to go out and play the trumpet or clang on a cymbal or whatever because you need to collect the people who need money so that the guy with money can give the money to those people That's what's going on. Or prayer. You go to the temple. I don't know about you, I've been in a lot of prayer meetings in my life. Some of them have been very interesting. Some have been very powerful. Some have been pretty much nothing. But I've heard a lot of interesting prayer. Dear God. Right? Like you go through the voice change and then you put on the holiness look. Dear God. Today we come before you. You know, it's like, does God speak with a bass voice? I have no idea. Sounds good. It's good for country western music for sure. But I, you get the point. And these people are trying to attack, attract attention to them. Okay? They do the same thing with fasting. I mean, what's the point in fasting if nobody knows you're in pain, Right? And so you have to go out and get some facial makeup or whatever to make you look a whole lot worse than you really are. I don't need to do that. I just look bad to start with. I just have to get out of bed and it looks bad. People worry for me that way. But but you get the point. There were people who were going to great lengths to, to draw attention to themselves. Using God's mechanisms from turning people into holy, righteous individuals, turning those things upside down and bringing attention to themselves. And Jesus said they got paid in full. They have their reward. They got the attention of men. They got exactly what they wanted. But you have to understand something today. Kingdom life is not about you. It's not about me. It's about God. And so the principle we need to keep in mind here is we have to keep self in check. We just have to work at that, to keep self in check. And then when we come over to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34, 
Well, Jesus doesn't repeat another phrase, but I just want to read a series of texts for you. You're getting the idea? We, we need to, if we're going to live kingdom life, we need to decide to enter the kingdom. We need to get rid of the garbage. We need to go for the gold, not to settle for second best. We need to recognize it's about God, not about us. Keep self under control. And the last thing is this. We're just going to read a bunch of passages here. Matthew chapter 6 and verse uh, 22. The eye. The eye is the lamp of the body. If the eye is healthy, I don't like that translation. If the eye is single, the whole body is filled with light. Hmm. Well, let's read a second text. I mean, Jesus just stacks up text after text after text here. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Another text. Do not store for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And finally, you get right down to the nitty-gritty of exactly what Jesus is speaking about. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added onto you. It's all about maintaining a heavenly focus. We have to work at it every day. Have a single eye. Keep your eye on what's going on. Some of you know I have a little farm. Very little farm. That is fun. And my field is irregular. This presents a problem, trying to do a straight line in an irregular field becomes a problem. So you set, I don't have a GPS on my tractor. I just have eyes. I pick some tree on the other side of the field and I try to go straight for that as I can. If I don't do that, the field is a mess. It's the same in our spiritual lives. Fixed point. One focus. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. In reality, kingdom life is really quite simple, isn't it? I mean, in theory, very simple. All I have to do is what? I have to enter the kingdom. You've got to enter the kingdom. Are you in? Are you out? It's an either-or thing. It's disjunctive. It's one or it's the other. You're either in or you're out. Enter the kingdom. Enter the kingdom. Empty the garbage. Get the garbage out of your life. Let the righteousness in and then overflow into godly behavior. And then having done that, don't play the game of just enough. 
Don't settle for second best. Go for the gold. And then make sure that you keep self under control because self is pretty sneaky and it's always trying to creep back in there. And then finally, maintain spiritual focus. Do these things, all of a sudden you recognize, you know what? The kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. Christ is reigning in your life. And life is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for allowing us to look at these texts.